Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the 1981 film Sphinx. Now, technically speaking, this isn't a mummy movie. It's more of a mystery thriller, I suppose. But I do think it holds many similarities to mummy movies. And it's also just got a few interesting elements to it, so I do feel it is worth covering. In terms of the layout for the episode... As will be a surprise to very few people by this point, we shall start with a look at the background information on the film. Then there will be a section on the historical accuracy. And finally, I shall review the film and then rate it out of 10 as well. But before all of that, traditions are traditions. We must start with my dramatic intro. Right. You are an up-and-coming Egyptologist who is currently undertaking your PhD. You travel to Egypt in search of a golden statue of Seti I. Shortly after you see the statue, there is a commotion outside and you watch a man get brutally murdered. In the confusion, the statue gets stolen and soon you are embroiled in an adventure including corruption, theft and romance. However, little do you know, that your journey will have absolutely nothing to do with a sphinx. Now, you might be thinking that the ending to that dramatic intro was a bit of a cop-out. But it's also just true, to be honest. This film has absolutely nothing to do with a Sphinx. And in fact, in total, I think you see about two of them in the entire film. And they're literally just in passing shots. The main reason it was actually called this is because this film is based on a Robin Cook novel of the same name, which was released in 1979. 
And what's actually really interesting about this novel is it's really different to Robin Cook's other work because all of his other novels are based around medicine and like medical murders, that kind of thing. Now, of course, there are a few differences between the novel and the film. So for a start, the, the book tends to take a bit of a more like psychological approach to the whole story and it's very character driven. Meanwhile, for the film, the, the ending has been changed slightly. There's been a kind of like romance angle added in as well and just generally more of a focus on the grandeur of Egypt. In fairness, they were able to achieve this as they had a budget of about $11 million, which today comes to just under $37 million after inflation. A lot of this money was used to shoot on location for five weeks in areas such as Cairo and Luxor. And like I said, this was done to make the film feel authentic and to showcase the rich culture of Egypt. Originally, the main character in the film, Erica Barron, was going to be played by Jill Clayburgh, or at least the makers of the film wanted her to play the part. So Jill Clayburgh is famous for films such as An Unmarried Woman from 1978 and the comedy film Starting Over from 1979. However, she turned the part down and Leslie Ann Down got the part instead. Leslie Ann Down was already known by this point, so she got her big break as Georgina Wurzel in the British drama show Upstairs Downstairs, which debuted in 1973. And since then, she had gone on to act in films such as Pink Panther Strikes Again, The Betsy, and even starred opposite Elizabeth Taylor in the film A Little Night Music. So in general, she could be seen as quite a good replacement. One cool thing about this film is it holds many of the same cast members as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Lost Ark, which came out about five months after this film. So Sphinx came out in February and Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in June, both in 1981. First of all, we have John Rhys Davies, who plays Salah in Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of my favourite characters. Then we have Vic Tablian, who plays Baranka in uh, Raids of Lost Ark. So he's probably the first person to get killed in the entire film. He's one of the guides who leads Indiana Jones to the temple where we have the boulder rolling scene. Uh, basically, he points a gun at Indiana Jones and then Indiana Jones whips the gun out of his hand. Baranka runs off and then you see him dead a bit later with a dart through his head. So he plays that character. Then you have Tuti Lemko, who in Raiders of the Lost Ark plays the Imam, who's the man who translates the top of the staff which leads the way to the Ark of the Covenant. And then finally here we have William Hootkins, who plays Major Eaton. He's one of the army officers who tells uh, Indiana Jones about the Nazis' plan to try and find the Ark of the Covenant at the beginning of the film. He basically is one of the people who sets the whole film in motion. In terms of the other cast members who have nothing to do with Indiana Jones at all, we have uh, Frank Langella, who plays Ahmed Kazan. Then we have Martin Benson, who plays Muhammad. And finally, we have Maurice Ronet, who plays Yvonne Maggiot. Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here I'm just going to talk about what the film does well and poorly when it comes to historical accuracy. The opening scene of this film is set in 1301 BCE in the Valley of the Kings, and it is stated that it is supposed to be during the reign of Seti I. During the scene, we have thieves breaking into the tomb of Tutankhamun to steal the treasure. 
There's a few things to unpack here, but first of all, the reign of Seti I began somewhere between 1294 and 1290 BCE and ran until about 1279 BCE. So the date said here, 1301, is slightly too early. It is worth noting that this film was made in 1981 and it may just be that we've learnt more information since then and the dates changed. It's one of the reasons that for this podcast I usually try and avoid saying exact dates because they're constantly changing and as a result I just feel that rough estimates are more appropriate for this podcast. On the upside, regardless of the date here, the Valley of the Kings is the correct burial location for this time period. So both Seti I and Tutankhamun are buried in the Valley of the Kings, as are most of the pharaohs from the New Kingdom. So the New Kingdom is a time period that started in around about 1550 BCE and ran to just before the turn of the century, so just before 1000 BCE, roughly we're talking here. And it includes some very famous pharaohs, probably some of the most famous pharaohs of all. These include Akhenaten, uh, Tutankhamun, obviously, Seti I, Ramses II, as well as Ramses 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, Hatshepsut, uh, Thutmose III. And, you know, this is only scratching the surface. Uh, the New Kingdom is almost certainly the best researched period in ancient Egyptian history. Anyway, moving on. So when it comes to the tomb of Tutankhamun, as I said, it's being robbed in this film. And indeed, there is evidence for two robberies of Tutankhamun's tomb in antiquity. So to explain this a little bit, I need to talk about Howard Carter finding the tomb. When it was originally discovered, the corridor between the main door and the burial chamber was completely full of limestone chippings. And when I say full, I mean, if you are a thief, you would need to literally tunnel through it to get to the burial chamber. You know, that was its purpose. It was there to deter theft. But what's really interesting is at the main, you get the main door to the tomb and behind it, there's kind of like a plaster sort of lining. And none of the limestone chippings have left a mark on the plaster, which basically suggests that the plaster had been there for a really long time before the limestone chippings were put into the tomb. You know, it basically means that the plaster had completely dried and settled by that point. Howard Carter also noted that the door to the tomb had been repaired on a couple of occasions, and the earliest repair had been done quite low down on the door. This basically suggests that the thieves had broken through the door quite low down, which indicates that originally the limestone chippings weren't filling the corridor. And so it's likely that the limestone chippings were put in the tomb after the first theft in order to deter later robbers. Now, of course, there was a second robbery. We have two parts where the door has been repaired. And it's likely that the thieves would have taken about seven or eight hours to tunnel through the limestone chippings to get to the burial chamber. One thing I really like in this scene is they do show the thieves like crawling into the burial chamber through a lot of limestone. So they clearly have done a bit of research here. And I do feel there's a few hints in the film that either, I don't know, maybe if it was Robin Cook when he was doing the book or whether it was the writer of this film. It does feel like they've done a bit of research and they've read some of the work of Howard Carter. What's more, I really like that they specify that one of the thieves is a stone cutter. This is really logical and accurate to be honest with you a lot of stone cutters did end up robbing the tombs of the valley of the kings and don't get me wrong not just stone cutters 
Basically, a lot of the thieves of the royal tombs were the actual tomb builders themselves. So they lived in a place called Dara Medina, which will come up a bit later in this episode. But it's just kind of logical, if you think about it. The tomb builders knew the layout of the tombs. They had the skills to build the tombs, so they also had the skills to break into the tombs to rob them. And this wasn't always down to greed, I want to say. A lot of the time it was down to starvation and desperation. Basically, Daryl Medina, the workman's village, was deliberately placed off into the desert, away from civilization. And as such, they were kind of reliant on a lot of the nearby temples for giving them food to survive, and they were reliant on water carriers to bring them water and things like that. Whenever there were issues with grain supplies or things like that, very often the temples wouldn't give them as much grain, and so they were forced to steal from the tombs. There is a lot more to it than that, but that's kind of the general idea for a lot of the theft. So, for instance, uh, at one peak time for tomb robbery, during the reign of Ramesses IX, the price of grain actually went up 12-fold. Bearing in mind that grain was the staple of the Egyptian diet, it basically meant that people were starving. It's also worth noting that in ancient Egypt at this time, you didn't have a coinage system. A lot of the barter was done using grain as well. So it was such an important necessity and one that they couldn't really be without. Unfortunately, however, when it comes to this scene, there are one or two problems. Firstly, although there were two thefts from the tomb of Tutankhamun, neither of them happened during the reign of Seti I. And in fact, by the time Seti I had started reigning, it's likely that Tutankhamun's tomb had been completely buried and forgotten. So, essentially, several flash floods in the Valley of the Kings led to a layer of alluvium falling over the tomb and sort of making it inaccessible. And it's thought this happened by the end of the reign of Ai, who was the person who directly followed Tutankhamun as pharaoh. The main reason this happened to Tutankhamun's tomb when it didn't happen to the other tombs in the valley is purely because all of the other ones are built into the side of like the rock faces in the valley, where Tutankhamun's is built into the actual valley floor. And so when the alluvium layer fell down, it covered it. And in fact, later still, during I think it was the reign of Ramesses V, they actually built workman huts on top of the tomb unknowingly so that they could work on other tombs in the valley. Overall, however, I quite like this scene. It's obviously not perfect. As I said, um, they get the dates for setting the first reign wrong, and all of the thefts of the Tomb of Tutankhamun came before the reign of, of Seti I. But the way they actually portray the theft, as well as the people involved in the theft, is pretty good, to be honest. And I love that you can see the limestone filling the passages and the fact that they have to sort of, like, tunnel their way through it. I think that makes the whole thing feel quite authentic. Moving on, later in this opening scene, when the thieves leave the tomb, they are confronted by men on horseback. These men capture the thieves and then tear them apart by tying them to horses and riding in the opposite direction. I've said it before, but horseback riding wasn't really a thing in ancient Egypt. And I know it's a stupid point, but especially not on such modern-looking saddles. At best, if there was horseback riding, they would have been using a saddle cloth, if anything at all. Though, generally, horses were used with chariots instead. 
Also, just in general, you can tell they've used quite large and grand horses for this scene, when in reality, Egyptian horses were much smaller than the ones shown. So height-wise, they would have averaged at about 4.5 feet. In metres, that would be about 1.35, something along those lines. So we're talking nowhere near as big as most horses are now. As for the punishment shown in the scene, again, this is purely fictional. There's no evidence of people being torn apart using horses in ancient Egypt. Instead, when it came to thieves, very often they were beaten with rods on the soles of their feet. They could also have their hands and feet twisted as well, and even have their hands and noses amputated. They could also be impaled and put to death. Though, in a way, I do wonder if having your hands and nose amputated might be worse, because ultimately, you're probably just going to die of infection anyway, and it'd be much more painful. Simply put, the punishments for tomb robbery were severe and very harsh. But the idea presented in the film of the thieves being torn apart by horses is, is nonsense. It's not something that was done in ancient Egypt. After the opening credits... There's a very small scene that shows a man who's presumably supposed to be Howard Carter making a small hole in the corner of the door to the burial chamber. He then holds up a candle and looks through the hole. This is a really nice little detail and it does suggest that the writers may have taken some inspiration from Howard Carter's work. Basically, in his descriptions of the discovery of the burial chamber, he does talk about making a little hole in the corner of the door and holding a candle up to it. He then let his eyes adjust, and when they had, he saw all of the amazing things that were in the burial chamber. And that's when he says the very famous line, I see wonderful things. By no means is this scene groundbreaking in any way. Um, it doesn't really hold any relevance to the story whatsoever, but I like that they included it, as it's just a nice little detail. And I do think it is worth just mentioning. Directly after this scene, we meet Erica Barron, the main character of the film for the first time. She's in a museum and she's talking about Tutankhamun. She claims that parts of four chariots were found in the tomb and over 143 pieces of jewellery were found on the mummy. She also claims that Lord Carnarvon died mysteriously less than four months after the tomb's discovery and then complains that when people find out she's an Egyptologist, all they want to do is talk about pyramids. Right, I'm going to start with this final point because I completely get what Erica Barron is saying here. The amount of times I've said I'm an Egyptologist and immediately people start talking about pyramids is either that or Tutankhamun, sometimes Cleopatra. And that's it, really. And don't get me wrong, I do think these areas are quite important. In fact, they're very important, um, especially when it comes to getting people into Egyptology. But as I said in, I think it was the last episode... There are so many other interesting things and people in ancient Egypt, and it feels like they get very little focus. So, like I said last time, Hatshepsut. Why is she never talked about? She was an amazing female pharaoh. What about Karnak? I, you see it in the odd documentary, but it never seems to be the focus, which is a real shame. Basically, when it comes to pyramids, when it comes to Tutankhamun, when it comes to Cleopatra, I suppose I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. Is there's no denying that these were elements that got me into Egyptology as well, so I can't look past that. But I just think about all of the other interesting things that people miss out on. And to be honest with you, I think 
a large part of this is just because a lot of the information is very inaccessible. It's held in university libraries in books that cost hundreds of pounds, if not thousands sometimes. And then half the time, the actual Egyptologists who are writing those articles aren't even getting paid for their work anyway, or if they are, it's not much. I just kind of wish these works were more accessible to the public, because they absolutely should be, and it would cause that interest in ancient Egypt, and it probably would cause more tourism in Egypt as well, which is good for everyone. Anyway, moving on to the other points. So she claims that parts of four different chariots were found in the tomb. In reality, there were actually pieces from six different chariots in Tutankhamun's tomb. In terms of her saying that over 143 pieces of jewellery were found on the mummy, this is more accurate. There were about 150 pieces of jewellery in the wrappings. And interestingly, the wrappings themselves, if they were rolled out, they would stretch from one side of a football pitch to another. That just gives an idea of how many bandages were used in the mummification of Tutankhamun. Her words on Lord Carnarvon as well are a bit hem miss, so she claims that he died less than four months after the tomb was discovered, when it was more about five months later. So the tomb was discovered in November 1922, and he died in April 1923. I wouldn't, however, say that his death was in under mysterious circumstances. So basically, he was bitten by a mosquito, and then the bruise got infected after a razor cut while shaving. This led to blood poisoning and eventually pneumonia. The mysterious circumstances thing was more a case of the papers of the day running it as a story to get interest up. One final point that's worth saying here is Erica Barron says that she's studying a man named Menefta, who in the film is the chief architect of Seti I. This character is completely made up for the film. He's not a real Egyptian. He's a plot device, basically. A little later in the film, Erica goes to see Abdu Hamdi, who's basically like an antiquities seller. He shows her a golden statue of Seti I, which has some hieroglyphs on the base. Erica reads these and is amazed to see cartouches for both Tutankhamun and Seti I on it, as well as the name of Manefta. In fairness, there are indeed cartouches for both Seti I and Tutankhamun in this inscription on the statue. So one of these is Hepanubre, which is one of the cartouches of Tutankhamun, and we also have his famous one, which is Tutunk Amun. So Tutankhamun. However, her reading of the rest of the inscription is a little bit hit and miss, as she says parts that are on the inscription, but kind of in the wrong order and clumping bits together that aren't together. So she starts by saying, King of Upper and Lower Egypt, son of Ra. Both of these phrases do appear on the inscription, but they don't appear next to each other. Instead, they're being used to introduce cartouches. She then misses out the entire middle part of the inscription and goes straight over to the side with the names of Tutankhamun. It's also probably worth noting that she claims that the name Menefta is in the inscription, and it's just not. It's not there. <laughs> so I suppose some of the pharaohs she's talking about do appear, so that's something. Um, Son of Ra and king of Upper and Lower Egypt are real epithets for kings, so that's fine, but she clumps them together when clearly on the inscription they haven't been. But outside of that, everything she's saying is pretty much wrong, to be honest. Later still, Erica encounters a reporter named Yvonne Magiot. Yvonne claims that it is illegal to dig up antiquities in Egypt and take them out of the country. He claims that as such, smuggling is a big problem in the country. 
I mean, yeah, he's absolutely right. Egypt does have an issue with the sale of illegal antiquities, and it is something that is taken very seriously. In general, I have noticed when going into Egypt, security can be weirdly lax, actually. However, when you're leaving, it's a completely different story. You're going to go through multiple security checks, and it does take a long time to get through the airport. In fact, one of my lecturers was actually telling a story once where they got pulled into a room because they found a small Shabti figure in their bag. The Shabti was just bought from a local store in Egypt and it even had a barcode on it, but even so, he got questioned about it. And then, even when it comes to legal excavations, someone will always be present on the site to oversee new finds on behalf of the government. And also, filming on these sites is usually strictly prohibited, and there are some Egyptologists who've even been thrown out of the country because they've done so. Basically put, this is an area that Egypt take incredibly seriously. Moving forward in the film, there's a part where Erica goes to Cairo, and she basically acts as a tourist for a bit. She goes to see the pyramids, uh, she sees the Sphinx, I think one of only two shots of a Sphinx in the entire film, and she also goes to the Serapium, which was the location where the Apis bulls used to be buried. I'll talk about them a little bit more in a second. Okay, this first point I want to say isn't really an inaccuracy, it just kind of got on the wrong side of me a little bit. So when she goes to the Great Sphinx, she walks along its leg for a photo opportunity. This isn't really a historical inaccuracy, but I don't think it's very good practice for an Egyptologist. You shouldn't really be touching the monuments unnecessarily. I mean, you only need to go to Egypt and have a look around the monuments to see the damage such activities can do. So, for instance, I remember once um, one of the guides in Egypt took me into a small, like, room in Karnak. And he basically pointed to a scarab that was completely black on the wall and said, Touch it! It's good luck! I refused because, well, the reason that scarab is black and is, is like, almost soot-coloured is because so many tourists have rubbed it. That's why it's like that. It's damage that's caused that. And then if you look in, say, like Luxor Temple, you can see a lot of the corners of the um, of the temple have sort of like black marks running down them. And that's just where tourists have sort of run their hands along them as they're walking around the corner. Again, it's not great. That's damaged. That's stuff that can't be repaired. So for this reason, I, I just don't, think an Egyptologist would be walking along the leg of the, the Great Sphinx. It's not good practice. Now we're going to turn our attention to the Serapium. So first things first, when they go down into the Serapium, it's quite obvious that they're shooting on location. This is the real Serapium and that does add to a certain authenticity to the scene that I will admit I quite like. When they're down there, their guide says that there are the remains of 24 sacred bulls in the Serapium. This is a massive underestimation. There were actually the remains of about 64 bulls in the Serapium. Though, in fairness, the guide here is made out to be a bit of an idiot. He's more of an entertainer than someone who knows what he's talking about. So I won't take points away from the film for this, I guess. So you may be asking why these bulls were buried here. And basically, they were what are called the Apis Bulls. There was only ever one of these alive at a time, and they were the manifestation of the god Ptah of Memphis. And one of the things these bulls could do is they acted as an intermediary between humans and Ptah. So basically, um, one way they could do this was the bull would act as a kind of oracle. So like the bull would be led into a special chamber, 
people would ask it questions and depending on how it moved, the priests would interpret that as the answer of the god Ptah. Interestingly, the cult of the Apis bull is one of the most long-lived in all of Egypt. It started around the reign of Den in the First Dynasty, who reigned around about 3000 BCE or just after. And the cult continued throughout Pharaonic Egypt and even longer than that for a matter of fact. Basically put, this cult lasted for over 3000 years, which is a number which is just kind of in impossible to get your head around almost. When the Apis bull died, it was carefully mummified and placed in the Serapeum, so the location they're in now in the film. What's really interesting is that outside of Herodotus, there are virtually no texts surrounding human mummification. This is largely down to the fact that it was likely secret knowledge that was passed down from father to son in family businesses. However, we do have texts on the mummification of the Apis bulls, and in fact, even after its mummification, the bull was treated to a lavish funeral as it was taken into the Serapeum for its burial. Basically put, although this film doesn't say that much about the actual Apis bulls, they were extremely important throughout Pharaonic Egypt, and they are well worth looking into. They are incredibly interesting. Right, moving on to the next point. A bit later in the film, Ahmed Kazan takes Erika to see the sites. They go to see Deir al-Medina, so the workman village I was talking about earlier, where he talks about all of the graves found that surround the village. He also claims that Seti I had the most beautiful tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Okay, so Deir al-Medina is indeed surrounded by tombs, and many of them are incredibly ornate and well-constructed. And if you think about it, this just kind of makes sense, as I said earlier. Deir al-Medina was the home of the workers of the necropolis, so the people who built the tombs. So they had the know-how to build their own tombs as well. What's more, the village contained artisans, it contained stonecutters, it contained foremen. So you had all of the skill sets you needed to build your own tomb really well. And also just generally access to the material to do so. In terms of his claim that Seti I has the most beautiful tomb in all of the Valley of the Kings, again... There is an argument there, and a good one. So Seti I, uh, his tomb is KV-17, so that's King's Valley 17. It's both the longest and deepest tomb in all of the valley, and alongside the tombs of Tutankhamun and Ramses V and VI, it's one of the only tombs you have to pay extra to go into. It's also one of the most completely decorated tombs in all of Egypt. Though personally, when it comes to the idea of it being the most beautiful, that's obviously very subjective. For myself, for instance, I would say the tomb of Ramesses the 5th and 6th is more to my preference. Though admittedly, I am very biased as that tomb came up in my undergraduate dissertation. <laughs> in fact, when looking at tomb robbery, the tomb of Ramesses the 5th and 6th is really important, actually. So basically, the lid of the sarcophagus of Ramesses the 6th has been broken and there's like streaks running down it. These streaks are basically oils and things from the embalming that hadn't settled before the tomb was robbed. And that means that the tomb was robbed very shortly after he was buried. However, if then you look closer at the lid of the sarcophagus, where it's broken, you can see that the oils haven't run into the gaps there. And this kind of indicates that it was broken later on after the robbery. And in fact, even in the records, you can see that the tomb was robbed twice and it must have been in the second robbery that the sarcophagus lid was broken. 
Anyway, we're getting a little off track. Going back to the most beautiful tombs in Egypt, I think if we're including the entire Theban necropolis, not just the Valley of the Kings, a lot of people would argue that the tomb of Nefertari in the Valley of the Queens is more beautiful as well. As in all honesty, that that tomb is absolutely stunning. Like I would urge you just to go on Google and, and Google it because you will come up with images and they're, they're very beautiful. I've even known people to cry when they go into the tomb. That's just how breathtaking it is. Okay, moving on to my final point. Towards the end of the film, Erica has a bit of a eureka moment when she sees the blueprint of the layout of the Great Pyramid of Giza, and she notices that the Queen's Chamber comes underneath the King's Chamber. Through this, she realises that Seti I must have been buried underneath the tomb of Tutankhamun. I mean, what? This makes no sense whatsoever. For a start, the Great Pyramid was built over a thousand years before Seti I. Also, although the Queen's Chamber comes directly underneath the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, it is worth noting that the name Queen's Chamber is a little bit misleading now, as we've pretty much discovered that it was likely some kind of chapel as opposed to the burial place for a queen. I suppose in fairness you do also have the Subterranean Chamber, which was designed as a burial place in case Khufu, the owner of the Great Pyramid, died before its construction had been completed. But even so, that's an incredibly flimsy way of figuring out that Seti I would be buried underneath the team of Tutankhamun in the film. Just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. As admittedly does the idea of Seti I being buried underneath the tomb of Tutankhamun. As we said earlier, firstly, Tutankhamun's tomb had probably been lost by the time of Seti I's reign. And also, just generally, as they said earlier in the film, we know where Seti I's tomb is. It's KV-17, it's in the Valley of the Kings. And okay, you can argue that no treasure was found in the tomb, that the body of Seti I wasn't found in the tomb either. But that's besides the point, because we know what happened to that treasure. We know what happened to Seti I's body. To begin with, the tomb was robbed uh, during the Ramesside period, so that's one of the reasons some of the treasure wouldn't be there. But you also have to take into account that during the 21st dynasty, there was actually legal tomb usurpation. So the bodies in the Valley of the Kings were moved to a cache at Del Bakari, which is right next to Hatshepsut's um, mortuary temple. And in fact, Seti I and the majority of the kings of the New Kingdom were found in this cache. I actually had a suggestion from one listener to review a film that's called Night of the Counting the Years which is about the discovery of this cache. And it does look like a really interesting film that, if that listener is listening right now, I do plan on getting around to that film. I haven't forgotten about it. It's just what with the release of the new Indiana Jones film, my schedule was kind of jam-packed, to be honest. Anyway, in conclusion, this film, it's a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to historical accuracy. You do get the feel that they were really trying here, and they do get one or two bits right or pretty close to correct anyway. Firstly, Tutankhamun's tomb was robbed twice, and so the robbery here does make sense, or, well, at least it would if they had happened during the reign of Seti I. Unfortunately, though, both robberies must have happened before that reign. I do also think, though, you get to see some really cool locations in this film. So the Serapeum, for instance, I don't, I can't think of another film that's used it in this way. 
However, the tour guide here is very hit and miss with his information, though I suppose it is clear he's supposed to be more of an actor than an actual tour guide. He's a bit of a con artist in a way. In general though, the one part of this film I really can't defend is the ending. The ending is horrendously stupid when it comes to historical accuracy. There is absolutely no reason why Seti I would be buried underneath the tomb of Tutankhamun, not least for the fact that we know where his tomb is. And also just the way she gets to this information by looking at the Great Pyramid and seeing that the Queen's Chamber is underneath the, the King's Chamber. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Overall, like I say, there's an attempt here to make it historically accurate. They get some parts right, but there's also some really big, blaring issues such as that ending. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Right, we have now arrived at the review section. So here, as I stated at the beginning of the episode... I'm just going to talk about what I liked in the film, what I disliked, and then rate it out of 10. And we'll also look at how other people reviewed the film and things like that as well. First things first, I will say the first sort of 25 minutes of this film are generally really good. So we start with um, the thieves breaking into the tomb in ancient Egypt and getting captured. Then we go to the actual setting of the film where we have our main character, we find out a little bit about her. And then the whole thing becomes really intriguing when she sees the murder of Abdu Hamdi and the, the statue gets stolen. At this point, everything in the film felt very coherent, and especially when you mix it with the general aesthetic of the film, because it was very clear right from the get-go that this was filmed on location, and they'd also taken a lot of inspiration from actual Egyptian culture. So, for instance, when Erica's going through the streets, she's constantly being hassled by shopkeepers. She's got kids running up to her trying to like get her to give her give them cigarettes and things like that. And it just all feels really good, and like they've put a lot of attention into everything. Like at this point, I genuinely thought I was watching a really good film. And what made it even better is after Erica sees the the murder, she kind of goes into hysterics it's, it's quite understandable and she runs out onto the streets and the fact that you've got shopkeepers hassling her the fact that you've got these kids surrounding her trying to get cigarettes just leads to have her having like a full-on breakdown which admittedly is quite a realistic reaction to this i will also say that i think the subject matter for this film is pretty intelligent it's about modern day tomb robbery and the sale of antiquities this is a really good premise for the story and very relevant as well. I feel like all of this was made even more realistic as a large part of the film, as already said, was shot on location. And so you actually see locations in Egypt such as Cairo and Luxor. I mean, what's not to love about that? 
I'm not going to lie, this genuinely made me want to go back to Egypt and made me realise how much I miss it. It was especially nice to see Luxor again, as this is a place I know best in all of Egypt. It is really a place that I'm very fond of. But there's even just little details that are really appreciated. So, for instance, at parts you hear the call for prayer ring out through the city. This is something I always used to find quite weirdly comforting. Like, I'd be laying in bed, you'd get, like, the light coming in through the curtains, and then you'd hear the call for prayer as they move through the streets. And, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly religious or anything, but it was just a weirdly nice way of waking up, I felt, and mentally it put me in a good mood for going onto site. I guess it's just because it's not really something you, you hear in the UK, it's not really part of our culture, and so it, it's a little bit different. For me, seeing a lot of the, the footage of Luxor and Cairo, places like that, from the 1980s was really interesting. It, it, it aged in a very interesting way, because it meant I got to see how the locations looked in the 80s and how they had changed over time. So, for instance, the Colossi of Memnon today tends to have quite a big, like, archaeological excavation going on directly behind it. Where in the film, the Colossi are just standing there and there's just, like, a, a field behind it, like a, a, a desert-like field behind it. Now, unfortunately, we must start looking at some of the not-so-good points of the film. To begin with, the film doesn't do a very good job of showing what's going on. So, for instance, after seeing Abdul Hamdi get murdered, we never actually see the statue of Seti the first be taken. Instead, we're just sort of briefly told that it was stolen. All it would have really taken would have been Erica opening the cupboard where the statue was and showing that there was nothing in there. That's all that would have been needed. But instead, you just get a brief statement that it's stolen that if you're not paying attention, you could easily miss. And then from that point on, you're just a bit confused of what's going on in the film. And that's sort of a big issue with the film, actually. And that's, only, and that's only one example of this. Basically put, if you're not paying attention all of the time, something's going to be said that you're going to miss, and then you're just going to be confused as to what's happening. I was literally sat there taking notes, rewinding and fast-forwarding, and even I don't 100% get everything that's gone on in this film, because it just sort of feels impossible to. Like, for instance... I'm still not entirely clear how Erica finds out the tomb at the end of the film was underneath the tomb of Tutankhamun. I get that she sees the blueprint of the Great Pyramid of Giza and sees the Queen's Chamber underneath the King's Chamber, but if that's the only hint she has that that's where the tomb is, I'm sorry, but that's just not good enough. But I can't tell you if I missed something. I, I honestly just don't know. But basically, this makes the film into a confusing mess. And as well as just doing a lot of telling rather than showing, I think it's also because the film tries to be mysterious to a fault and occasionally just forgets to include the revelation part that you kind of need, to be honest. For instance, for a large part of the film, Erica is talking about wanting to escape and go home. But then, because she gets a letter, she simply changes all of her plans and goes to Luxor in order to chase the thieves on the black market who are trying to kill her. Why she does this? I'm not entirely sure. Is it just due to the note, or is there something more? <laughs> that rhymed. I don't know. I had no clue. And honestly, as well as making the film just feel very disjointed, it makes Erica as a character feel incredibly inconsistent. This isn't really helped by the fact that she's just also incredibly gullible. So for a start, she trusts a reporter, Yvonne Magyot, way too quickly. 
So to start with, she sees a murder and then sees him scuffling with someone. He then grabs her and when she screams, he puts her, his hand over her mouth. She then escapes, rushes through the streets where she has a breakdown until he finds her. Then after that, they just go to dinner and she just seems to tr completely trust him. It doesn't really make any sense. But the main problem is, she isn't even gullible in a frustrating but good way. It's just in an eye-rolly kind of way. So in another instance, bearing in mind she is well aware that she's being hunted down by dangerous men who wish to deceive and harm her. A random child finds her in the streets and tells her to go to this location alone in the middle of the night. Now, normally that would scream red flags, wouldn't you think? But no. She just goes alone in the middle of the night and then shock horror gets kidnapped and locked in a tomb. I mean, I'm sorry, but at that point, I have very little sympathy. There's no way you should be that, that gullible. My final problem with this film is that it's just too long and it's not exactly thrilling either. I feel like the film may have worked a bit better if it was just half an hour shorter and they'd cut some of it out. Because considering that the film consists of murder, long-lost tombs and corruption, it somehow manages to have really long, boring periods. In terms of the reviews for this film, the film does not have a critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has an audience score of 34%, and on IMDb it has 5.1 out of 10. Generally, it is seen as a very slow film with admittedly lovely scenery. It is also pointed out that the film has absolutely nothing to do with sphinxes, which is a good point in all fairness. There isn't much to do with that at all. For myself, on the upside, the film has spectacular scenery and occasionally captures the magic of ancient Egypt in a way that genuinely made me yearn to go back. There is a good premise here as well and the outline of a good film that does make me wonder if the book might be quite entertaining. However, the film relies far too much on mystery and vague explanations to achieve the potential that's clearly there. Also, Erica, the main character, is far too gullible and inconsistent to be a good character, and I just find her very hard to care about as a result. Overall, I would give this film a 5 out of 10, and one of those points is purely based on the scenery and atmosphere, as I do think that the people in charge of that did a really good job, it's just a shame that the rest of the film could not match up to it. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you have, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment? This stuff really does help. Um, I will say there's not going to be an episode this Thursday. Uh, so essentially... Life is just getting a bit too hectic to be releasing two episodes consistently every week. When I say hectic, I don't mean in a bad way. A lot of what's happening is, is good. But I do feel that if I was to keep up the two episodes a week thing, the quality would inevitably drop, and I don't think that's okay. Instead, I'm going to focus on making one really good episode a week, and then occasionally there'll be an episode on a Thursday as well. I'll probably record the Thursday episode slowly and release them that way. For those of you who might have been looking forward to the last two Moon Knight episodes, I will say they are still coming in the not-too-distant future, but my hope is that me taking a bit more time over them will make them into better episodes. 
and ultimately I do want to put out the best product I can and I do think this is the way for me to do it. Either way, apologies for those who might have been looking forward to the first day episode, but I really do hope you join me on Monday where we shall be looking at Prisoners of the Sun from 2013. This is supposed to be a remake of the Dawn of the Mummy film I reviewed a little while ago now, but it was one of the films that was so bad that I weirdly kind of loved it. It was just insane, and I'm sort of looking forward to watching this one. Anyway, I hope you all have a fantastic week, and I hope to see you then. Thank you.